The following is a sermon from Living Hope Bible Church in Port Rowan, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit livinghopebiblechurch.ca. Thank you, thank you. Well, uh, church, this morning, I'm excited and I'm looking forward to a new series that we're going to be starting in the book of 1 Samuel. I'm, I'm so thankful for what God uh, was doing through the series of Faith in Action through James, and I'm so looking forward to what God is going to continue to do in this series of 1 Samuel. So, our theme for the series is this. You ready? You ready? You ready, church? This is the series on the theme for the series of 1 Samuel. It is God at work, all right? God at work. God is always working. He was working then, and he continues to work now, and so God at work. Now, let me give you the reason uh, for this series' focus in the way of giving you a background of the book of 1 Samuel. Well, really, the setting of 1 Samuel um, that, that the author is recounting is the time in the, in the history of uh, the nation of Israel where they were not in a good way with their walk with the Lord, all right? They were in a really bad way, like rampant wickedness and sin was prevalent in the nation of Israel. And the time frame that the author recounts is the time of the judges. That's the period of which this book is written in, the time of the judges. Now, I don't know if you remember any of the judges. Have you, have you read the book of Judges before? Um, I think a couple characters, a couple of the judges that quickly come to our mind is um, Gideon, right? You read about Gideon, how God uses Gideon. He says, hey, mighty warrior, and Gideon's, Gideon's like hiding out in a little cave, right? So because of the other nation coming and taking over. Um, so Gideon was a judge. Um, Samson, you know about Samson? Um, Samson was a judge as well. And so this is really the time frame in the way um, that this book was written. Now, there is a really bad cycle that the nation of Israel was in in this time frame of the book of Judges. Uh, do you remember why God had to, or why God in his mercy and his grace brought about the judges? Well, they were in this, the nation of Israel was in this sin cycle and really this, this um, horrible cycle. It kind of went like this. It went, um, the nation of Israel would rebel against God. And as a part of the rebellion and the turning going after false idols and doing shrine worship and like prostitution and murder and all sorts of just heinous things before God, um, he would um, punish or discipline the nation of Israel by allowing another nation to come in and kind of like have their way with them. All right, you know what I'm talking about? With, when it comes to that, he would discipline. A nation would come and be like the Philistines, and they would take over, and they would oppress the people of God. And what God did with that, it was actually an act of mercy of God to get them to their knees and draw their hearts back to him. And so they'd go through a season of like this harsh discipline and punishment, and then they would come to their senses, get on their knees, and call out to God again. And they say, oh, God, deliver us and help us. They would repent. And God, in his grace and mercy, isn't our God so merciful and gracious? He totally is. That's just that he is such a merciful and gracious God. And what he does is he looks upon them and he, and he starts to enact a deliverance for them. And he does that by raising up a judge. And so the judge would come in and he would deliver their hand from the, from the nation that was against them, the Ammonites or the Philistines. And then they would enter into a season of rest and renewal. But that was short-lived, and then it happened again, and then it happened again. And so they were constantly rebelling against God, all even from like Egypt. And so here we have this. This is the setting of the book of 1 Samuel that the author is recounting. Uh, listen to what Judges, um, the author says in, Sam, or in Judges chapter 21, verse 25. He says this. This, is, this kind of summarizes the place that the nation of Israel was. He says this. In those days there was no king in Israel... Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
So not a good place. Not a good place for the nation of Israel. And this is the setting of the background of 1 Samuel. Uh, but God, um, loving in his covenantial love his children, was starting to work in a way to bring about deliverance for the nation of Israel. And the book, kind of the overarching big picture um, kind of synopsis of the book of 1 Samuel is really it is God providentially working through human means to accomplish his sovereign plan in bringing the people of God back unto rule. And he does that through setting up the monarchy. And so that's really what God is doing in the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, he, is, he is instituting, he's raising up a prophet, and uh, Samuel being a prophet, priest, and judge. And then he sets up the monarchy, the kingdom, where we see Saul, and then we see King David. All right? And the purpose of him doing that is to bring his people back into rule and to draw them back, kind of like the kings were his viceroy, to draw them back into a close relationship with him. And they were to do this as kings, lead the nation in godliness. Now, obviously, we know that Saul, that didn't go so well. Um, David uh, was a man after God's own heart. And although he messed up and he stumbled and fell, God, he made a covenant with David. And he made an eternal covenant that one would come from the line of David and would sit on the throne of David forever and rule eternally. So as much as God was in his sovereignty, was raising up a king to bring the people under, he knew that no human king could do that. No just king of this world could do that. And that ultimately points and sets up the true king that would come, who is Jesus Christ and who will return, who is the true Messiah and deliver all of his people ultimately. And so this book points to the fact of what God was doing and how God was working. God was working to set up the kingdom, which ultimately he will rule and reign for all of eternity. That's awesome. That's Jesus Christ, our Lord and our King. And so the book of 1 Samuel, I'll just let you know this, it's really broken up into three sections. It focuses, the first kind of eight chapters focus on, on Samuel and his call in ministry and how God used him, and then it shifts to Saul and kind of his rise and quick demise, and kind of on the downward spiral, God appoints David, and we see David starting to rise to the point where we get to the end of the book of 1 Samuel, and Saul dies, and David moves into power, but there is a 40-year span of that, and so there, this was kind of the big picture of the book of 1 Samuel that links into 2 Samuel. So that's the overarching view. God, um, in his providence, sovereignly working through human means to bring his children under his rule. Now, how we are going to make our way through this biblical narrative, because that's what this book is. It's narrative. Like three quarters of the Bible is narrative, all right? So we're going to be approaching this in a way, not kind of looking at the macro narrative, but the, but the micro narrative or the smaller narrative or the individual units is how we're going to approach this uh, series. So we're going to narrow our view a little bit and look at what the author is doing through individual units. Now, why we're going to do that is really twofold. First, it's to see what the people were doing and to see how God responded to what was going on, how God responded to them or how God stepped into the situation. All right? So we're going to see that. And then the second reason why we're going to approach it this way with narrowing our view to the natural units is because we get to discover different character traits about God and learn more about who he is and what he does through those different situations and how he operates. And so that's a really awesome thing. We get to look at how God works. And so that's why we're calling this series God at Work, all right? Because God is at work. He was at work then, and listen, he has not stopped working now. He was the same uh, yesterday, today, 
and forevermore. And so we're going to jump into this series. I'm so looking forward to it. I believe God is going to bless us and move us forward in this, and I'm, I'm really excited for it. So let's get started. Um, series, God at Work. Our first focus today in the text is God at Work in the Midst of of pain, all right? God at work in the midst of pain. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel, and we're going to be looking at chapter 1 and going through kind of chapter 2, 11. We're going to not go through every single verse here, but we're going to pull out the principle of what's going on here, all right? God at work in the midst of pain. Now, we've just come through our series in the book of James, and we've talked about trials and different things, and, and we kind of did a recap last week, and we constantly need that encouragement, and so I'm so thankful for God to that, but let me ask you this. Um, have you ever gone through the pain of having your character and your integrity attacked? Have you ever gone through that before? Have you ever gone through uh, the attack of somebody that just is dragging your name through the mud and spreading that around? And uh, what do you do? Have you ever had that before? Have you ever experienced that before? I, I remember um, a time when Dad and I were doing the bees together when I was in it full time. This was about six years ago. We had a pollination, different pollination contracts set up, and um, we had a really rough winter, a really rough winter season, and so we lost a whole whack of colonies. Um, it, it's very difficult to try to meet everything and, and, and do that, so we're like, we need to come up with something. We need to do something here, and so we found a guy that was retiring um, from beekeeping in Quebec and, uh, or Montreal, and so he had his hives um, pollinating blueberries up in northern Quebec, and so we're like, we, we really need to get, get these hives going on. Uh, but the issue was the crop had already started here. Our seasons are a little bit different there, right? And the crop was already kind of starting here, and he wasn't done pollinating up there. So we were already kind of a week behind, and then he's like, I'm going to be longer because i got to load all these hives up myself. So my wife and I, we get in my dad's car, and we drive to northern Quebec, all right? It was, uh, it was, it was, it was great. It was a great drive, but we had to get up there and I had to help this guy load it all up and then get them all back. Um, but the issue was, is we couldn't just throw them in the field. We had to split them to get our numbers up and put in queens and all that kind of stuff. Anyways, the point that I'm making is, is we, couldn't, we couldn't get them there in time. And so what I did was I said, you know what, we can't do it. I called another beekeeper and I asked him to, to bring in uh, highs if he would take care of the contract. He could have the whole contract. You just need to call, um, the, you need to call the farmer. And I told the farmer this, and uh, this guy operates a little bit differently and than what we do. And um, man, he reamed me up and down. He swore at me, called me all these names, and really attacked us in our integrity at Hunt's Honey. And it really bothered me. It really upset me. Like, like what's up with that, man? And I like, and the flesh just wants to lash back, right? If we're honest with ourselves, we just want to like, you gave me a blow, man. It's coming back at you right now. Maybe, maybe that's just the hockey fighter in me. I don't know. I'm not good. God's got to keep sanctifying that, right? But it, it hurts us. But I remember, you know, just, Lord, why does this even happen? And I'm like, okay, you know, he's an unbeliever. We're just going to give him grace there. But let me ask you this. What happens when a fellow follower of Jesus Christ, what happens if they attack your integrity and character? How do you respond? What do you do? But I think the most, or the more important question is, is this. What does God do when the character and integrity of his faithful followers comes under attack? What does God do? What does God do when your character and integrity is just under the limelight, just being hit? Now, I'm not saying because of a sinful choice. I'm not saying, listen, you, made, you chose to do something, and as a result, you're going through some heat. Praise God, there's forgiveness, there's restoration, there's grace there. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you're faithfully honoring and following the Lord, and you come under attack. 
What does God do in those things? How does God intervene? Because at times it can seem like, God, are you going to do anything? What's going on? This seems so unjust and unfair. How does God respond? Well, I love this story, um, this um, true account. Now, I just want to say this. When I say story, I'm not talking about some fictional thing. I'm talking about true biblical account, all right? So when I say story, think of true account, all right? So I love this true account, this biblical story of really a situation like that happening. And I love what God does in this and what God does and the truth that we can see what God still does now. Turn, if you haven't already, 1 Samuel chapter 1. Let's get a glimpse into what's going on um, through this faithful follower of Jesus, uh, well, of the Lord at the time, through the faithful follower of the Lord. Um, her name is Hannah. She was a woman that feared the Lord and she was facing some great hardship and great pain. And let's see what God did in the midst of this. So let's, let's enter into this story and let's see what was going on and see how she responds and see what God does, all right? This is so cool. Okay, follow along with me. It says this, there was a certain man of Ramathahim, Zophim, in the hill country. Can you say that? I hope I got it right, but let's just try it again. Try it at home. It's just kind of fun. Ramathahim, Zophim, all right? Imagine being at that kind of place. The ones that are here right now, they're like, I'm not saying nothing, all right? So they're from this place in the hill country of Ephraim, and uh, it says here, there was a man there, and his name was Elkanah, son of, Jer- son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, and Ephrathite. You're like, well, that's great. That's great. Well, who cares? <laughs> what the author is doing right now is he is given the lineage, and he's making a point that this, this man, Elkanah, he's from the priestly line of Levi. All right, so this guy, the author's introducing us to the first character. It's Elkanah, and he is of the priestly line of Levi. All right, that's what he's saying here. He says this. So here's Elkanah, and he says this. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. Hannah and Peninnah. So the author introduces us into this story of Hannah and Peninnah, and there's a guy who has these two wives. Now, I just want to say, excuse me. I just want to say something for clarity. Have you ever wondered when you've kind of read through some of the Old Testament narrative why like some of these guys had multiple wives? Have you ever wondered that before? Like why God did you allow this? I just want to bring some clarity to this um, about polygamy. Um, Polygamy was never God's design or intention. Okay, let's just make that really clear right now. Uh, It was never God's design or intention. Genesis chapter two, verse 24 says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh, all right? That was God's original design. When he created Adam, he created Eve as a helpmate and they were to be together forever for all of eternity, all right? Now, obviously with the sin and the fall that changed things up and death entered the equation, all right? And so God made provision if, if a husband were to die or a wife were to die, they could remarry under those bounds, all right? And there's a few other things that are, are there as well, but that was the point, was one man, one woman. Um, although that was God's intention, um, God tolerated it in the Old Testament. We see that that was tolerated, all right? So God's intention was never polygamy, but it was tolerated, all right? And, but I will say this, uh, tolerated in his grace and his mercy, praise God that he's merciful and gracious and tolerates things with us as well. Um, but the reality, it wasn't the intention. But I do want to note this, that every situation where you see a polygamous um, relationship, always strife and hardship, Okay, never good, never a good thing. Uh, just think about Abraham, right, with Sarah and Hagar. Do you think that was a good thing? 
<laughs> um, fighting to the point where, like, get that slave woman away from me. And now he's sending off his, his other son through Hagar and her, and they're, like, gone. Like, not a good situation. Uh, what about Jacob with uh, Rachel and Leah? <laughs> uh, not a good situation, right? Constant strife and fighting. Like, I hired my husband for your mandrakes and all these things going on. It's like, they're fighting over them. Constant strife. Constant strife in the family. You see Solomon, man, his heart was turned from the Lord because of all the women that he had in his life, right? Um, David, strife in the family, strife among siblings, murder. Like, like horrible, horrible, horrible idea, all right? Praise God, it's illegal here in Canada, but it should not even be happening, all right? Never God's intention. And here, we see in the story that it's not a good thing either, all right? Polygamy is never a good thing. So there you go. There's a freebie for you. Never God's intention, but he tolerated it, okay? So you don't have to, I wish I could have more than one. No, don't even go there. Okay, so he introduces into the scene. Here is Elkanah, and he has two wives. Now, um, there's a problem and some tension that enters the scene. It says here that... um, Penina, she had children. Do you see it in the text? Look at the text there. Penina, she had children, but Hannah had no children. You see it there? No children. Now, you might say, well, what's the big deal? Who cares? Why is the author telling us that Penina had children and Hannah had none? Who cares? Well, to them and their culture, this was a massive deal. This was a huge thing to have children. Um, it, was, it was part of their uh, belief system that if you didn't have children, it meant that God, God's divine displeasure was displayed upon you and a curse was pronounced upon you. It was because you have done something, there was some sin in your life or sin in your parents' lives and you're being punished and God is not happy with you. That was the thinking in their day, that they thought that if no children meant that there is something that you have done or your parents have done, and so God is giving you um, a just punishment through holding, withholding a child from you. So this was a great source of shame and pain for Hannah. This was a great source of it. Now, we get a glimpse into Elkanah, and uh, we're not going to focus on him, but um, Hannah was probably Elkanah's first wife. Realized that can't have children and passing on the family name was huge in their culture too. And so he marries Peninnah to carry on his family line. So we see a problem. We see a situation going on and here enters the tension into the story. Now this was a huge deal um, because as I said, they thought that those who didn't have children, women that didn't have children were under God's displeasure and a curse for him. And where that really came from was Exodus chapter 23, verses 25 and 26. It says this, you shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water and I will take away sickness from among you and none shall miscarry or be barren in your land. And so what they took from that was that um, it was a promise that God and a blessing that God gave to the nation as a whole, but they weren't actually living that way anyways but they totally missed that God still works and causes and allows things to happen for a greater purpose. So this was a constant source of shame for Hannah. This is a constant source of people looking at her in her small village that God is displeased and God won't bless you because there's something going on with you. You're not honoring the Lord in some way. And so can you imagine what that would have felt like to have the character and integrity of your heart before God constantly questioned? constantly push through, that you've done something wrong, you're living in some sin. The author now goes into really walking through Hannah's great pain. 
Uh, really three ways that Hannah was experiencing great pain. The first way was that he's going to walk through the text is the pain of public shame year by year by year. Look at what he says here. The author moves into this now. So we, here we have the scene. We have Elkanah, we have Hannah, and we have Peninnah. And it says this. Now this man, that's Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. That's where the tabernacle was. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And that's where they, they would go and they worship. And this, this um, festival would have been the festival of the tabernacle, or the Feast of Booths. That's this festival. All right. And he says this. So he would go up there um, to the Lord of Hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. So here is some of the pain that Hannah's experiencing. Now let, let, me, let me paint a picture for you of what's really going on. They'd go up there to this Feast of the Tabernacle, and as part of their sacrifice, they would bring a, an animal or a bull or whatever, and they would, they would give part of it to the priests as their allotted amount to, for their provision, and they would also give an allotted amount to the Lord, but it also was divvied among the, among the people bringing it for their family to have a feast. So it was almost like this fellowship feast that was happening in the presence of the Lord, where they commune and they fellowship together around that meal of sacrifice. And so what would happen is this, is, is Elkanah would be divvying out food, all right? So Panina walks up, and she walks up with a big old tray, and Elkanah's like, here's a sirloin for you, here's a tenderloin for you, here's a blade steak for you, here's like, like 15 of them for all your kids and for you, Panina, right? And so she walks back with this massive tray and sets it down on the table for all her kids, and it's a, it's a, it's a joyous thing, like, yeah, look at all the blessing of the abundance of what God has given me, this is awesome, And here comes Hannah walking up with a plate and be given a portion and walk back, constantly reminded that she has no offspring. Now, the text says here that um, Hannah was loved by Elkanah, and he gave her a double portion. Now, that word is hard to understand. In the Greek, it literally means from forehead to chin, from ear to ear, Ear to ear, I went ear to ear. Um, it literally means full face. It means a whole portion. So it could be it, and I believe this is probably what was going on. Um, Alkena gave Hannah her T-bone steak, but he also threw on a tenderloin on there, right? Because he really loved her, all right? And he wanted her to feel that love and affection. But the reality was, is can you imagine walking up and kind of taking that public shame, that public walk of shame, right? To going up there and grabbing all that she could take because that's all that she had. The point here that the author is making is that she experienced a public shaming. And note this, it went on year by year. But as bad as that was, all right, um, Penina would provoke her grievously. Do you see that in the text? And the purpose of that was to irritate her, just to get under her skin. And it would be in a way of, look at all that I have. Hey, the only reason why you have what you have is because you can't even provide children for Elkanah. You, you, you can't even do that. You're under God's curse. And her character was hit and attacked. Can you imagine that immense pain? And it wasn't just once. It was year upon year upon year. 
So there she's reminded, even going to the sacrifice, that she is lacking. And in their culture, all she wanted was a child. And it wasn't because of her unfaithfulness. So that's one, that's one point of her pain that the author is making here. But the other here is, is something that was revealed as well. The reality was is the Lord had closed her womb. It says that right in the text twice. Though the Lord had closed her womb, and it says because the Lord had closed her womb. The reality was is the Lord had caused this to happen. But she was plagued by the thoughts that all, everybody believed at that time. It's because you have done something wrong. But she knew in her heart that she hadn't done anything wrong before God. She'd been living rightly before God. She loved the Lord and worshipped him. She would have been constantly taunted by her thoughts that maybe I am under God's curse. Maybe I am under divine displeasure. Maybe he is displeased with me. That was part of her pain as well. And the third was um, her husband just didn't get it. <laughs> um, poor Alkenna here, he didn't get it. Sometimes we husbands don't get it, right? Um, but but, but look, at what, look what happened here. Because of her pain, look, look at the rest of verse um, Verse seven here, so he said, she would provoke her, Panina would provoke her, and it says this, therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. That's just the, the heart of her pain there. It's just like all the shame, all the hardship, the, the fact that the Lord wouldn't grant her a child, she wept, she wept because it was so painful for her. But look what it says here in the text. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And that's more of like a, oh honey, why do you, it wasn't that, oh honey, why do you weep? It was more like a, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? And look what he says here. That's, that's the flow of the Hebrew. And he's like, and, and why do you not eat? And why is your heart so sad? Oh, poor dude, this guy needs some help. Am I not more to you than 10 sons? <laughs> Baby, am I not more to you than all the sons in the world? Come on. Like, he totally missed it. He totally missed it. Um, no, uh, no, 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 you're not. <laughs> um, he didn't get it. He was insensitive in that. I don't think it was his fault in the sense of like, hey, you know, he just didn't understand the depth of her pain. He didn't understand the depth of the attack of the character against her. He just looked at the surface. Like, I'm enough for you, baby. No, it's more than that. It's more than that. It's the intense pain. So her husband couldn't help her. He didn't help at all. He made it worse. So to top that off, here's Hannah's pain. Her character, her integrity were under attack. Her husband didn't understand, and she faced this in and out. It was upfront, and it was intense for Hannah. Let me ask you, have you ever experienced that before? Maybe not that way, obviously, but have you ever experienced the intensity of the pain of following the Lord, seeking the Lord, and just going through one pain after the other in a situation and being attacked What did you do in that if, if you had experienced that? Did you fight back? Did you maybe hide, bury your head in the sand and hide for a while? Maybe you ran and fled to another place to get away from it all and get away from the scrutiny and the hardship of it. What did you do? Did you do one of those things? Or did you do what Hannah did? I think this is so cool. Well, let's look at what Hannah did in the midst of her pain. Let's see what she did. Look at verse nine. It says this. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, okay, 
Hannah rose. That's not, in, that's not in meaning that Hannah ate. It's, she was weeping. She was so bitter of soul, so hurt, hurting inside that she didn't eat. But the rest of them ate. It said after they had done eating, Hannah rose. And look where Hannah, what Hannah did. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. What Hannah did was she got up and she went to the presence of the Lord, the temple where the Lord was at in that time, and she went to, that that represented his presence, she went to the temple, went to the tabernacle, and she called out to God and she poured her heart out to him. And she wept before him. And it says this, what she did. She says, um, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant but will give to your servant a son then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Now as you read this you can think that Hannah here is trying to manipulate God a little bit like hey God if you do this I'll do this all right. Um, I don't believe that's what's going on here. I don't believe that's what's all going on here. I believe that Hannah in her prayer is calling out to God and seeking vindication from him. That's what Hannah's doing. She's seeking vindication. She's seeking that the Lord would vindicate her and vindicate her character, and also God will use this boy, this child, and set him apart for a special task for life. That's why she says in this when she prays, no razor will touch his head. And you're, are you familiar with the Nazarite vow? This is really what she's saying. I will give him to be a Nazarite all the days of his life, Oftentimes they'd enter into a Nazarite vow for a season to set themselves apart for a, a purpose for moving forward for God, right? But the reality is here, she's saying, I will set this child apart and he will serve you all the days of his life. What she's doing here is she is asking God to intervene in a miraculous way. That's what she's doing. That's what this vow is referring to. Moving in a miraculous way. And she's really calling out and asking God to do what God did for, having, for um, Samson's mom. You just look at the story of Samson that she would be drawing on there and she was barren as well. And God brought about Samson to use him to raise him up as a judge and to deliver the nation of Israel. And so here, Hannah is praying in that effect that God would move and that she would give him to the Lord but that would vindicate her and that would also God would use for his glory to move the nation of Israel forward. But the one thing I do want you to notice here, that's just to explain that, but I want you to notice that in her great pain, she went to the Lord and poured it all out before him. That's what she did. She didn't run away. She didn't hide. She didn't leave. She didn't fight back. She didn't attack Panina. She didn't attack her husband when he, when he needed to smarten up a little bit. We all need that, husbands and wives at time. But she didn't do that. She went to the Lord. And she sought him. Look what she said here. And even through, even though the, the, the high priest at the time totally didn't get it, she persevered in that. It says here, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. So she was, that's the whole point. She's pouring her heart out. Eli didn't get it. He said, therefore, Eli took her, took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But look at Hannah. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. 
Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. See that? The pain. Anxiety, vexation, just the deep-seated hurt and struggle. Character being attacked, the struggle of thinking that God wasn't blessing her, no one getting it. Eli responds, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that, it, that you have made to him. She said, let your, servant, let your servant find favor in your eyes. So we see the character of her in this. But she called out to God. Now, the one thing I want to see here, I want you to see, in her great pain, she called to God. She called to God. Why does she call to God? Why does she go, why does she go right to the Lord? Doesn't say she went to anybody else. She, she probably had tried that all along in other places. We don't exactly know. She could have went to her friends. She could have went to other people. I don't know. But the reality is in this case, the point here is that she went right to God. Why did she do that? In the midst of her great struggle and her pain and the attack of her character and her integrity, why did she go right to God? What's the point that the author is telling us? Well, she knew something and she believed something so true and so sure she went to God because she understood or, or longed to, or, or, or was reconciling that fact that God is the one who responds. God is the one who is answered. God is the only one who could truly help her. And what's awesome is, I want you to look at what God did. So in her great pain, she went to God, but look what God did. It says here in the text, the woman went away. So after her pleading and crying out to the Lord and after her calling on God, it says this, the woman um, went her way and she ate, and her face was no longer sad. Do you see that there? Her face wasn't sad anymore. Well, why not? God comforted her. God comforted her in her great anxiety and struggle of spirit, in her great turmoil of soul. She went to the Lord, and God comforted her. Not only did God comfort her, I want you to look here, verse 19, says this, then uh, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before God, so she enjoyed the fellowship that she had lost because of her great pain. She went to the Lord, um, poured it out, he comforted her, they worshiped the Lord, then they went back to their house in Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her, and check this out, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. What did God do? God, what did God do for Hannah in this situation when she was under all this great attack of character and integrity and all of her pain? The two things that God did for her was he comforted her and he vindicated her. He vindicated her. He, in his due time, he provided a child for her and a son and God cleared her name of all these things. And God cleared what was going on. And God made right the wrong that was done against her all those years. He did that. And this is so awesome. You look at Hannah's heart and her response when she goes. We're not going to read the whole text. But when she goes and she gives Samuel to the priest Eli to follow through on her vow of setting him aside and serving the Lord in that way for a priest for life. Look at what she says in her, in, in her prayer in chapter 2 verse 1. It says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies. Well, who was her enemy in that time? 
Benina was. And he's, look at this. Derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. And God saved her from that plight. God saved her from that hardship. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. Now check this out. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, the feeble mind on strength, so a feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The point here is she is rejoicing and praising God that he vindicated her. That he made right the wrongs. He made right the thing. He made right the reality that it wasn't her character. It wasn't her integrity. God had a plan for what she was going through. He had a plan for it. And he ultimately brought about Samuel, who was set apart as a prophet, priest, and judge that brought in and set up the monarchy for the nation of Israel, which ultimately leads to the coming of Jesus Christ, the true king. That's awesome. They didn't see that in this time. But the reality was he comforted and he vindicated. Listen, this truth is so real for us as well church. This is such a truth that we can grab onto. What does God do when the character and integrity of his faithful followers comes under attack? Listen, this is the truth that is true for us as well. He brings comfort and appropriately vindicates them in his time. He will bring comfort and he will appropriately vindicate you in his time. That's an awesome truth. All right. The story's not about maybe you're a mom at home and you want to have a child and God's going to give you a baby. Okay, that, That's not the point of this story. The point and the principle of this story is that God comforts and vindicates us when we're going through great hardship and attack. So keep looking to the Lord. Cast all your cares and anxieties upon him. He comforts you. Isn't this so much what Paul says in, in uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7? Isn't that so true? Listen to what he writes to the church, the Philippian church. He says this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what's going to happen? You go and do that, just like Hannah did. Just like Hannah went to the Lord, all right? We go to the Lord now. The, 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 the veil has been torn. We've been brought close to God through his spirit, right? And the reality is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But the reality is he says this, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. In Christ Jesus. God will comfort you. God will give you his peace that surpasses all understanding. That's awesome. That's awesome. But not only that, he will vindicate us. He will vindicate us. He will make things right. He will make it right. Remember what the Lord said, or what Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 19? I, I like this translation. It's the NLT. It says this. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. The reality is, is we're gonna go through all sorts of things in this life. They're gonna attack your character. Your integrity is gonna be intact, all right? And if we haven't been living in sin, we've been following the Lord. Yes, there's restoration. Yes, there's, there's forgiveness. But the reality is, is as we faithfully follow the Lord, we can face attack as well. But hang in there. Keep moving forward. Keep trusting the Lord. Don't let Satan defeat you that way. 
All right? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He will repay. God will bring recompense and he will repay when we enter into glory. Uh, ultimately, he will do that. He will do that for the church and he will do that for us individually because we make up the church. So that's true. That's awesome. But even now, if you're going through hardship, God will make that right. In his time, we will trust him through it. But even with a believer in Jesus Christ, note this, note this, what about them? Because there's no condemnation for them. The reality is God's um, arm in discipline is not short. If somebody, and this is a warning for us, if so, like, we gotta be so careful to build each other up and not attack each other. Um, God will discipline and make right and the truth will come out and the truth will be revealed and praise God for that. He's not just, I'm just gonna let things go and I'm, you're gonna just go under suffer, suffer from some injustice. God will vindicate. God won't just let things go. It hasn't slipped his eyes. So trust him in that according to his time and his plan and his will. But I think that's so awesome about the Lord. That's so, that, is so, that is so encouraging. He comforts and he vindicates. So in the midst of hardship, whatever you may be going through right now, note this. Um, follow the pattern that Hannah followed. Go to the Lord. Seek his face. He loves his children. He loves you. And he hasn't left you. He knows what's going on. He will comfort you. And in his time, according to his will, he will vindicate you. What an awesome truth in this story. What an awesome truth and what we can learn about God. Our God is so good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for this account of Hannah and how she sought your face in the midst of her hardship. Going under attack, going under um, scrutiny. God, you care. There are times where we may feel like, God, do you even see what's going on? Do you even see what's happening around me? Oh, you see. You see and you know and you tell us, Lord, and you give these examples like this story of Hannah that when we're in the midst of it, we can go to you. And you will comfort us. Maybe there's somebody here today, Father, that is watching that just needs that affirmation. That when they go to you, Lord, in the midst of their hardship, you will bring that comfort because you love your children. And you will make right the wrong. But Lord, we will not take matters into our own hands. Would you help us never to do that, Lord? Would you help us to not take matters into our own hand, but just to trust you that you know what's best, that you see rightly and you judge rightly and you restore or you discipline and restore rightly. You do all of that, Lord. So would we trust you Would we rest in you? If there's someone here today that is struggling, encourage them, Lord, in this. Encourage them of your love. Encourage them that you have a plan that's greater. You had a plan that was greater for Hannah in this situation. You had a big picture plan, but we often get so caught up in the small. So help us to see, help us to rest, help us to trust. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are sending your son, Jesus Christ to come and ultimately you are going to vindicate your church as a whole from all the wickedness and all the oppression that we undergo throughout the attack of the enemy and those that belong to him. Thank you that you will usher in your kingdom and bring us, bring us home and usher in your kingdom and we will reign with you forever and ever. We love you, Lord. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.